Good day, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Live with Doug. We are thinking through God's word together. Hey, Keith, good to have you along with us. Lewis says, good morning, all. I think I know where you're going with the Reapers and into the age today. <laughs> we'll see. Uh, good morning from Southern Cal. Uh, I'm trying to read, read your read your name there. I can't pronounce that. Anyway, <laughs> glad that you're with us. Uh, so we are continuing our series on the kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, and uh, it's definitely going to spill over into next week. So I want to go back to the parable that we looked at yesterday and see if our common understanding fits the context best. So remember, Jesus told two parables of the sowers. One, he's throwing the seed and there's four different soils. The other one is where the, uh, uh, the wheat and the tares grow up together. And then the disciples asked Jesus to interpret it. And let me, let me kind of walk you through the traditional understanding of this uh, parable. Jesus says, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. That would be Jesus. The field is the world. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom. So in the traditional understanding, that would be believers. The tares are the sons of the evil one. That would be unbelievers. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. And the harvest is the end of the age. That would be the end of time. That's when Jesus returns and judgments and all that. And the reapers are angels. So the Lord's going to come with his angels and he is going to separate believers from unbelievers. So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so it shall be at the end of the age. That would be a reference to hell. The son of man will send forth his angels. They will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness. So that would be Again, all the unbelievers uh, and disobedient. And he will throw them into the furnace of fire. That would be hell. In that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. So the unbelievers are removed, thrown into hell. And from that point forward, the believers live in whatever your particular view of the um, the next age is, whether it's a millennium or new heavens, new earth or whatever. That's, that is the traditional understanding of this text. And that may be correct. However, and you know what my however means, right? <laughs> there are some things in the text and the context that make me want to at least engage with a different view. So just go with me here, hypothetically, and see if this makes sense. And, and feel free to push back, but don't push back till we get to the end. Just see if I can persuade you that this is at least a strong possibility. Uh, Valdigal says, uh, end of the age equal millennium. Uh, how do you know? Does it say anything about the millennium here in the text? Where, where, how would you prove that the end of the age is the millennium? Show me in the text itself. So remember, I'm always, always hollering at you, <laughs> trying to persuade you. You've got to see contexts. We are so good at systematic theology 
we pull together this, that, and the other thing and make our filter, and then we interpret each text through that filter, we do that far easier than simply letting, uh, well, I shouldn't say it that way, than really being careful to see what is being argued and taught in the broader context. So I'm gonna back up to uh, Matthew 12 here a little bit. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, that to Jesus, teacher, we wanna see a sign from you. Right, they wanna see a sign from Jesus. Jesus says, an evil and adulterous generation craves a sign and no sign will be given it, but the sign of Jonah, just as Jonah was in the belly of the whale three days and three nights. So he's talking about uh, his death and resurrection, right? He says, the men, of Je- uh, the men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at judgment and condemn it. Think about that. The wicked men of Nineveh are more righteous than the first century generation of Jews. Because the men of Jena, uh, Jena, the men of Nineveh repented when Jonah preached to them. And Jesus says something greater than Jonah is here. So you see the contrast. Jonah went to Nineveh. They were wicked. Jonah preached and they repented of their sin. Jesus says, I am greater than Jonah and I'm here preaching truth to you. And you Jews, especially the Pharisees and scribes, you have not repented at my teaching. So you're going to be judged by the men of Nineveh. The queen of the south will rise up with this generation at judgment and will condemn it. Because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Behold, something greater than Solomon is here. So Queen of Sheba, I think is uh, who he's referring to. She came from a long ways away when she heard what Solomon was doing and accomplishing. And she listened to Solomon. She wanted to hear this wise Solomon. And Jesus is saying, I am greater than Solomon. And I'm telling you things far superior to anything Solomon ever said. And yet, you're not listening to me. So that queen of this pagan Gentile nation will condemn you on Judgment Day because she had better discernment than you do. So Jesus is talking to first century Jews and saying that these wicked Ninevites and this Gentile queen are better and more righteous. Are you you tracking with me? So it's a contrast between Jews and Gentiles. Okay, so then he gets into this bit about uh, the spirit, and I'm going to, even though it it is sort of applicable, I'm going to move on for the sake of time. While he was still speaking to the crowds, crowds of whom? Crowds of Jews. Behold, his mother and brothers were standing outside seeking to speak to him. Someone said, behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside to speak to you. Jesus answered, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Now, just let that settle. He, he loved his Mary, his Mary mother. Sorry, my mouth is getting ahead of my brain today. He loved his mother, Mary. He loved his brothers. But he says, who are they? You're, you're, you all are making a big deal that my mother and my brothers are here. And I'm saying, who are my brothers and brothers? He stretched his hand toward his disciples. Behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. 
Do you see what Jesus is doing there? He's saying it's not about being of the same family. It's about believing him. It's about doing the will of the father. Do you see how he's breaking the connection that the Jews think they have with God and his promises? He's exposing that simply being of the nation of Israel doesn't mean anything if you don't believe Jesus and obey Jesus. All right, you tracking with me? Very important to see the context. That day, same day, Jesus went out of the house, was sitting by the sea, and large crowds gathered to him. Another massive group of Jews. Were they the same people he just spoke to? Maybe. We don't know for sure. But it's of the same, it's, it's a group of Jews. And that's when he gets into the boat and he tells them the parable of the sowers. And remember, we, we talked about this. After he gives the parable of the sowers, he says, he who has ears, let him hear. That's an allusion back to Isaiah 6. And then he's going to go on and explain that the generation to whom he is speaking, these crowds, many of them do not have ears to hear. God hardened the hearts. He closed the ears, blinded the eyes of the majority of the Jews of Jesus' generation so that they would not respond in faith to him. This group that uh, one day is saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Some of you celebrate that on what we call Palm Sunday. And then a few days later, they're clamoring for Jesus to be crucified. The crowd clamored for Jesus to be crucified. They rejected him. Paul discusses this in Romans 11. God hardened that first generation of Jews, blinded their eyes in retribution for their wickedness and for the wickedness of previous generations and because they were going to crucify the Messiah. So of all these crowds, most of them did not have ears to hear. The disciples ask him, why are you speaking in the parables? And he says, to you it has been granted to understand the mysteries of the kingdom. Remember, we looked at this yesterday. To you it has been granted or given to understand the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. Okay? So it's in that context of most of them being hardened where they can't understand what, what Jesus is talking about that he gives them the parable of the uh, the wheat and the tares. All right, so let me skip down here to where he... Uh, gives the uh, interpretation. All right, so Matthew 13, 34. All these things Jesus spoke to the crowds in parables, and he did not speak to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet... Quote, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden from the foundation of the world. That's from Psalm 78. So he's telling them things that were hidden. Remember what a mystery is? A mystery is something that was hidden. It's now been revealed to the disciples. What was hidden has now been granted to them to understand. To the rest, Jesus speaks in parables so they won't understand. So a parable here is serving both purposes of 
of clarification and explanation for the disciples and judgment and hiding the truth from the rest of the crowds. Okay? Then he left the crowds and went to the house, and his disciples came and said, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. So I'm going to walk back through the same thing I covered at the beginning with a different perspective. Everything in the context is about Israel. It's about the Jews and the judgment on that first generation of Jews, which, as I've been teaching you for a long time, occurs again and again and again. So much of the New Testament is in the context of God's bringing the covenant curses upon the nation of Israel and destroying them because of their wickedness. And then this new thing that he's doing in the church. So we've got the promise, I'm putting together what we've covered this week. We've got the promise of the kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven coming in the time of the Roman Empire. And it's going to be like the stone that grows into a mountain that covers the whole earth. So it's going to expand to the whole earth. And Jesus is talking about the kingdom. It is here, it's at hand, and he's talking to a group of Jews in the first century, many of whom are under God's judgment and will not be able to hear. So could this parable be about God's judgment on Israel more so than the end of all things when Jesus returns? So let me, let me walk through this from that perspective and see if it's persuasive or at least possible in your mind. So the disciples want to know what this wheat and the tares parable is all about. Jesus says, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. That's Jesus. Right? So he's sowing good seed. The good seed is in the field that grows up, right? The field is the world. As for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom. The tares are the sons of the devil, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. Okay, so there's two groups. You got wheat and tares. The wheat is the sons of the kingdom. The tare, tares, are the sons of the devil. Now, has Jesus referred to anyone else as sons of the devil? John 8, speaking to the Pharisees and the scribes, same people that are brought up in this context. You are not sons of Abraham. You are sons of your father, the devil. So it's at least possible in light of other scripture that the sons of the evil one here are Jews who reject Christ. The Pharisees the scribes, and the majority of those crowds that we talked about. In which case, the sons of the kingdom would be the Jews who believed. So this would be Peter, and Andrew, and James, and John, and so on. And the 70, and the others who believed. So, 
could he be talking about this time period, the first century, and there are sons of the kingdom, those who are the expected heirs of the kingdom. In contrast to the sons of the devil, the Jews who did not believe. And remember, I I showed you this yesterday. We know at least in one other context, sons of the kingdom do refer to Jews very specifically when Jesus is asked to heal the Roman centurion's slave. Remember, he's a Gentile. And the centurion says, don't come to my house, just give the word and he will be healed because I believe in you. And Jesus says, truly, I say, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. Again, the contrast, the Gentile centurion's faith and the lack of faith in Israel. I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. So all these foreigners, Gentiles are going to come. They're going to be in the kingdom and recline there with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But the sons of the kingdom, same phrase as chapter 13, the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Very similar terminology. So there are Jews, the sons of the kingdom. The kingdom was promised to Israel. The sons, the the rightful heirs of the kingdom are going to be cast out of the kingdom in a place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. So at least in that context, just a few chapters earlier in Matthew, the sons of the kingdom are clearly referring to Jews. In that case, it's wicked, unbelieving Jews. Here, it's believing people, but it still could be referring to Jews. You see, you see the point? So it could be that Jesus is talking about here, in his day, he is sowing seeds that grow into wheat. He is sowing sons of the kingdom who believe and accept him and follow him. But the devil is at work and he has his people, which is the majority of the Jews at the time. And the two are going to grow together until harvest. And the harvest is the end of the age. So if what I'm presenting right now is the accurate view, then the end of the age or the consummation of the age would be the end of the Jewish age, the end of the old covenant era, the final and, and culminating condemnation of the Jews in 70 AD when the Romans sacked Jerusalem, burned down the temple, and Jews died in mass. They slaughtered each other. It was, it was awful. And the reapers are angels. So the Lord of hosts, host of armies of angels, sends his angels down, brings the Roman leader Titus. They besiege the city and the city is burned down. So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so it shall be at the consummation of the age. The Jewish age, 70 AD. The Son of Man will send forth his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks, those who commit lawlessness, and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, if you were with us last week when we did our study of hell, Gehenna, the word Gehenna does not occur here. 
But it's possible that this furnace of fire is referring to Gehenna. And again, he's using that terminology to say their bodies are going to be destroyed and burned on the waste dump of Gehenna. That's what they did with bodies. Or it could be the furnace of fire is the city's going to be burned down. In other words, this doesn't have to be referring to eternal fire here. This could be indicating the Jews are going to be slaughtered and wiped out. Another point in that favor is out of the kingdom, Jesus is going to, to remove all stumbling blocks. Now, that may just be a generic statement. But it also could be an allusion to Zephaniah 1, 3. Here's Zephaniah 1 through 3. Zephaniah 1, 1 through 3. The word of the Lord came to Zephaniah, son of Cushi, son of all these people, in the days of Josiah, king of Judah. Okay? God says, I will completely remove all things from the face of the earth, from the face of the land. This doesn't necessarily mean the whole globe, but it can be the land because he uses this word land, Eretz, in the Hebrew uh, to refer to Israel over and over again. I will remove man and beast. I will remove birds of the sky and fish of the sea and the ruins along with the wicked. I will cut off man from the face of the earth. So I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I will cut off the remnant of Baal from this place and the names of the idolatrous priests along with the priests. So this is clearly a judgment on Israel, uh, on Judah, right? The Jews. This word ruins in the Hebrew is the word stumbling blocks. So if Jesus is alluding to that, he could be using similar terminology to say, I'm going to remove the stumbling blocks that is the unbelieving Jews. Think about how severe, how, how, how influential the unbelieving Jews were to the early church. They followed Paul everywhere he went. They followed the gospel wherever it went, trying to snuff it out or trying to get the Christians to convert to Judaism. They were a severe stumbling block to the gospel. Every epistle that Paul wrote and that Peter wrote, all, all the New Testament epistles, and over and over again we see it in the gospels, the Jews are the major stumbling block for the gospel. In 70 AD, AD he removed that stumbling block as the Jews in mass were slaughtered. And then he says, Oh, our time is up. Then he says, then the righteous, so the, the stumbling blocks are removed. Those who commit lawlessness are thrown into the fire. There is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. That is an allusion to Daniel chapter 12. Let me read this quickly. Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people will arise. So your people are the Jews. There will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. Sounds like great tribulation to me, 70 AD, similar language that Jesus used in Luke 21 to describe the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. At that time, your people, everyone who is found in the book will be rescued. The sons of the kingdom, maybe? Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. 
these to everlasting life, others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. So there's going to be resurrection and judgment. It says many, doesn't say all, interestingly. Those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven. And those who lead the many to righteous like the stars forever and ever. It sure seems to me like there's shining brightness and leading people to righteousness that comes after these things in verses 1 and 2. So, for the, for the sake of time, uh, this would mean this is talking about the gospel going forth into all the world as the kingdom has been growing since 70 AD. All right, that probably raises more questions. And again, I'm not... I'm not 100% persuaded of this, but largely it makes a lot of sense. And so I'm trying to work through it with you. Mike says, uh, do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see the fields are white for harvest. Yes, that that all sounds like it's happening in near time for Jesus, right? Not thousands of years later. So give it some thought, wrestle with it, study it. If you have some counterpoints, uh, put it in the comments and uh, we'll continue next week to look at these things. Thanks for your time. Tomorrow is Fridays with the fellows. Gentlemen, come back and we'll talk about manhood and, uh, and wisdom. Have a great day, everyone. Take care.